So today we're going to take a journey together with the Word of God, and we're going to look at the last days of Jesus' life, and uh, we're going to look at his entry into the city, and then we're going to look at some very specific things that Jesus did, and the question we're going to look at today is why? Why did Jesus do what he did? Because I think if you get to understand the why, then uh, the scripture begin, becomes alive to you, and I think that it will be very valuable for your walk this week. So as you came in, uh, you got some palm branches, and uh, I don't know if you know what those represent, so let me just kind of give you an indication of that. This represents, this is what they laid at Jesus' feet as he walked into this, as he rode into the city of Jerusalem, and it represents power and peace and victory, those things. And so uh, that's, that's what they were proclaiming about Jesus. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. We're going to talk about how he entered the city. We're going to talk about why he came in the city the way he came in. And then we're going to talk about why he died and how, he, how his death makes a major difference in how we even see life today. Is that fair? You want to go with that journey with me? Okay, we're going to do that then. So I have to say that for some, uh, Jesus isn't the God, Jesus of the Bible. So for some people, they have adopted a view of Jesus that is other than what the scripture actually represents him to be. So let me give you a couple examples of that. For some, Jesus is just a good luck charm. That's why, you know, you, why some people wear a cross around their neck. They wear this lucky charm around their neck. And so this lucky charm is, you know, like if you need a parking space, oh, he's, the, he's, he's your guy. Jesus, I need, anybody ever prayed when you're looking for a parking space, Jesus, please help me find a parking space. I'm just going to say that's not the Jesus of the Bible, okay? <laughs> Smile at me when I say that. So he's not a good luck charm. Some people believe that, you know, if you, if you want to do good on a test, uh, Jesus is your guy, right? So I didn't study last night, but I'm going to take a test today, and so would you please give me recall of things that I didn't study? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And uh, for some, uh, he is Aladdin's lamp. You know what I mean by that? You just kind of rub his belly and you get three wishes. And, and for others, he's let's make a deal. You know, he's kind of a let's make a deal, God. If you do this, I'll do that. And uh, all those things represent a false Jesus. So the Jesus that I worship, the Jesus that I've known for 40 some years now is the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible is simply this. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the creator of the universe. He is the God that I bow to every single day. That is the God that I worship. That's who Jesus is. And I hope that's who Jesus is to you. And we're going to take a journey with this Jesus and see where that leads us. And I just want you to know that my Jesus, the Jesus that I know, is a Jesus that is worthy of my life, of my love, of my worship, of my married being. I give him all, and he is the reason that I take my, my very next breath. That's the reason I exist. And so that's the Jesus of the Bible. So with that in mind, there are five defining acts that Jesus did in his last days on earth. And let's look at them. And let's see if we can relate to them and see what God has to say to us today. So the first thing that I want you to notice right out of the gate is how Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. He was coronated as a king in his entry, and that's found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 6. If you brought a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. If you didn't, you can look, look on your phone, or if you didn't bring any of those things, I know everybody has a phone, you can look on the screen and we'll read the verse together if you're like me and are lazy when you come to church. 
<laughs> I didn't say that out loud. I was thinking that, I was thinking that thought, it just came out of my mouth. Would you please forgive me? So in Matthew chapter 21, verse six, it says, the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, <clears throat> excuse me, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others cut branches. Those are the palm branches we talked about. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of all the procession and the people all around him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Stop there for just a second. Hosanna to the son of David. What does that mean? We sang about it. You sang Hosanna a few minutes ago. Did you actually know what you're singing? So let me describe to you what it is. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but you, know, you, know, you probably should know what you're singing, right? So Hosanna literally means save us now. Save us now. Bring deliverance. They're, they're crying out when they, set, when they shout Hosanna to Jesus 2,000 years ago, they were shouting to him to come as king and deliver them. But their, their understanding of deliverance was a little different than our understanding of deliverance. What they wanted was for Jesus to deliver them from the oppression of the Roman government that they were under. They were under the tyranny of the Roman government. They were slaves to Rome. And they were crying out and saying, save us now. And what they meant by that is, Lord Jesus, you're the king. And they had this idea that he was going to come. And when he, come, when he came, he would rescue them, rescue them from this tyranny. So they cry out, Hosanna, the son of David. This is so important for us to understand. And uh, understand this one thing. Uh, at that moment in time, because this was Passover time, the city of Jerusalem would be filled with tens, hundreds of thousands of people that would migrate to Jerusalem to partake of Passover. So this was no small thing. And they were, they were anticipating Jesus being there. And so they're crying out. And so we read the text, and this is what it says. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They had heard of his fame. He had resurrected Lazarus from the dead. That was no small feat. That was, he had this growing fame. And now he's in the city of Jerusalem. And of course, the religious leaders want to crucify him. They want to kill him because they had already determined that when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so he comes into the city and literally the city is in uproar and the crowds thought, this is it. This is it. This is, he's going to do it. This is it. And uh, he had a different plan. So he rides in on a donkey. So why did he choose to ride in on a donkey? Why, why did he choose that donkey? Well, a king, when a king was riding into a city, if he was coming for war, he would ride a stallion. And of course, we know as we read the Bible, because you're all students of the Bible, right? Amen? You know that the next time Jesus comes, the second coming of Jesus, he is riding on a stallion because he doesn't come the second time in the same manner he comes the first time. He, when a king would ride on a donkey, he was coming in to offer peace. So here's what Jesus was doing. As he rides in, on the, in the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, he is coming to offer Jerusalem and the people of Israel peace. Peace with God. He was coming to offer them that peace, but of course we know the story. They rejected him, crucified him, and, and again, God turned to the Gentiles, and that's why you and I are sitting in church today. It was also fulfilled prophecy. So this wasn't the first time that this was written about. So in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, 
This is what it says. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. This was written hundreds of years before it happened. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is, watch this word, he is humble. Riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So what we learn about Jesus, why did he ride on a donkey? Because it was who he was. This is the humble God of the universe. Think about this. Jesus stepped off of his throne and emptied himself of the right to be worshiped and adored by the angels. And he was born into this world and he came to this world in a humble fashion. And he enters the city of Jerusalem in that humble fashion as a mark of this beginning Holy Week, and he rides in on a donkey in absolute, Zechariah says, in absolute humility. That's the first thing that I want you to see, is I want you to see the humility of Jesus. Secondly, the second thing that I want you to see is the second thing that he does, one of the things that he does, the second thing I want to talk about, is that Jesus actually weeps over the city. So I have to give you a context for this. So Jesus had a headquarters that week, he was in a town about a mile's journey from Jerusalem. And every day he would make that journey into Jerusalem. He'd walk into the Jerusalem or he'd ride like he did the first time. So one of those days, Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem as he enters the city and he literally weeps over it. He cries. So we see this in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. It says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even, 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 excuse me, I said that wrong. He, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that makes for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What a confronting passage of scripture. What a challenging passage of scripture, because I wonder how many times that Jesus weeps over us thinking, have you, had you only known, if your eyes were only open to see who I really am. And so why did Jesus cry? Why did he do that? I think there are two things that make Jesus particularly sad. Number one is when we are religious but wrong. It makes, us, makes Jesus sad. And before you judge everybody else around you and the world around you and Israel and you know, whatever you're gonna judge, look at your own heart and know that maybe maybe you don't have it all right. What makes Jesus sad is when we have religion, but we get it wrong. And that's such a destructive part in our life because here's the reality. Devotion is not the criteria for heaven. Let me say that to you again. Don't miss it. Devotion is not the criteria for heaven. Neither is sincerity. That's not the criteria for heaven. The only people that go to heaven are the people who have forgiveness of sin through the cross. And so this is so, so huge. So he weeps when people are religious, but they are wrong. And he weeps when he knows the end, when their end is destruction. So I want to tell you a story that relates to what we're talking about here today. In 1995, probably before some of you were born, there was a flight that took off from Miami going into Columbia. And so modern technology, even in 1995, they did have some modern technology, just so you know, it's for the record. And so they, uh, they took off and they punched in the automatic pilot stuff. And you know, the, the, I know you know this, but 
you know, lots of times pilots don't make their own landings. It's they're, they're punched in and the, the plane just goes in and, you know, sometimes they land, sometimes they don't in terms of the pilot himself. And uh, so in this particular case, they plugged in the numbers, but they plugged them in wrong. And so on all their gauges, true story, in all their gauges, everything looked right. Normal. Good. It was going to be a great landing, except the numbers were wrong and they ended up on the side of a hill. And everyone on that plane died because they had punched the numbers in wrong. Everything looked good. Now think about that as it relates to us. Think about Jesus. Think about when he entered the city of Jerusalem. This happens to religious leaders sometimes when they're on autopilot and they think they've punched in the right numbers but they're just wrong. It happens to us when we look to religion as the answer. Everything on our gauges looked great, but let me say this over and over to you again and again and again. Religion is not your answer. Religion has always been the enemy of what God is trying to do with his people. Religion leads us in a wrong path. What we learn about Jesus is simply this. His heart is for people who are far from God, lost, now listen to my words, lost in their self-righteousness. Oftentimes, religious people are lost in their self-righteousness. That should be a major, major wake-up call for us because we've got to make sure we get this thing called heaven right. This thing, we, don't, we only get one tour on planet Earth. We don't get a second shot. We need to make sure that this is right, or that we have it right. And we need to make sure that we're not just, we don't have the wrong numbers plugged in and we're just on autopilot, just landing the plane. I'm just simply saying, Jesus cries when we are doomed for destruction when we have religion but are lost in our sin. The second thing that Jesus does is Jesus curses. Did you know that? He curses. So let me show you this. Matthew chapter 21, verse 18, this is what it says. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Jesus was human. He was hungry. Walking into, into Jerusalem and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on it forever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. The next day the disciples noticed it. But Jesus cursed it the day before. And it died. Do you know why? Because leaves represented that there was going to be fruit. So Jesus saw the leaves. He walks over to the tree and sees that there is no, absolutely no fruit. This fig, tree, this fig tree is very symbolic of people, honestly. So what makes Jesus angry? What means Jesus curse certain things? When there is repeated religious hypocrisy in their lives. This tree was a standing example of hypocrisy, claiming to be one thing, but in actuality, not really that thing. That's hypocrisy. So for me and for you, how I live my life on Sunday mornings should be no different than how I live my life on Monday mornings. And if it is, then you are involved in religious hypocrisy and Jesus speaks to that issue right here. Repeated religious hypocrisy. So I'm gonna tell you a story from my own personal life. So several years ago, I was sitting in my office and a man just knocked on the door and came in and uh, he had been traveling the country and he walked in and he said, he told me that he had memorized the entire New Testament. I go, wow, that's impressive. Memorized it 
verbatim the entire New Testament, and now he's working on the Old Testament. And then he began to rebuke me for not having done the same thing. You're a pastor, right? You should be doing, you should have the whole New Testament committed to memory. And I'm thinking, I have trouble remembering all my kids' names, okay? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, okay? Let's just be honest about that. And so he started chiding me for that. And as, I, as he sat down and he told me his story, the reality was is that his wife had kicked him out and was divorcing him. You know why? Because he was abusive in their home. And so she had had enough. So he wasn't able to translate Listen to this carefully. What is written on the pages of Scripture into his own life? It doesn't matter how much you've memorized. It doesn't matter how much you know. The issue is how much is it translated into your own soul and then lived out in, the, that we're in front of the people that know you the best. My life should have no difference between Sunday and Monday. I should be, I should be the same. Not perfect. We're all sinners. Not perfect. But the reality is, is there shouldn't be a religious hypocrisy that goes on in my life. So what I learn about Jesus is his, his, his desire for our lives to have authenticity in it. Jesus isn't interested in your religious devotion. He's interested in your authenticity. That's what he's interested in. He wants to know, he wants to know what husbands, what your wife knows. Is there a difference between Sunday and Monday? Is there a difference between those two days? And how I live my life, he's looking for people who will be authentic, honestly admit where they're failing. failing. He's looking for authenticity in your life. That's what I learned from the life of Jesus. And then Jesus does something else that week. He cleanses. So let me show you this. In Matthew chapter 21, it says, verse 12, it says, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the, the tables of money of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So what was going on here? Was it, was it wrong for them to sell stuff in the temple? The answer is no, it wasn't. Here's what was going on. Remember I told you early on in the sermon, you know, that a couple hours ago when we started this sermon, remember I said that as, you know, at this time of year, there was a pilgrimage that was made to, to Israel and Jerusalem in particular, and they were there to celebrate the Passover. And so to celebrate the Passover, you would have to have sacrifice. So if you are a rich dude, you would take a lamb. That was, what, that was the normal sacrifice during Passover. And there was instructions from the law of Moses of how you would do that. And if you were poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, you would take doves and you would offer them. And remember, they're traveling, so they wouldn't carry a lamb with them. When they got to Jerusalem, they would do two things. First of all, just like any tra traveler, they would exchange their money. They would exchange their money. They had to have the right currency. They had to have the right currency to buy these offerings. And so think about it this way. So they, these travelers come into Jerusalem and they are wanting to make these purchases so they can be right with God and they can do the right things. And the religious leaders of the day extorted them. They jacked up the prices. Now, for those of you who have been a Christian for a while, you know how Jesus looks at the poor and how he is angry every day at how people are treated who are poor. Oftentimes they're treated differently than people who have money. 
So Jesus sees this hypocrisy that's going on. He sees this manipulation that's going on. And I'm gonna tell you what Jesus hates. Jesus hates religious manipulation. Manipulating for a purpose. So I'm just gonna say this. Let's just be honest. Let's just be authentic here. When pastors extort people for the sake of money, God hates that. He doesn't want us to manipulate for the sake of religion. And husbands and wives who manipulate inside of a marriage for wrong reasons, same concept. So Jesus walks into the temple and he overturns the, 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 the tables there and he says, my house, my house is a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. And this is what I learned about Jesus. I learned that Jesus is holy and he expects me to walk with him in holiness. That's what I learned about this. This was, this, they were violating the holiness of God as they manipulated people religiously. They were violating the holiness of God as they, viol- as they, as they did this. And so Jesus acts. The last thing, and you've been waiting for me to say the last thing, because <laughs> you're authentic, right? And you're, you're gonna be honest with me here. The last thing that I want you to see is that the crowning event of that week was his crucifixion. So let's look at the why of the crucifixion for just a minute. And, and then we're going to give you an experience, I think, that would be memorable for you. First of all, let's just rehearse what happened that week. So you know the religious leaders hated Jesus. And the reason they hated him is because he was overturning their kingdom. And they hated it because they had the control of the people through their religious manipulation. And so Jesus comes along and he's liberating people. He's giving them freedom. It's for freedom that Christ came. He's giving them freedom. And so the religious leaders hated Jesus. So they plotted to kill him. And so think about what happened to Jesus that last week. First of all, as he was arrested, he was arrested wrongly. He had an illegitimate trial, a mock trial. He was accused of things that were just unrighteous falsely and then he was betrayed by every single one of his disciples except for John every single one of them in fact so much that this is what happened Peter one of the devout disciples Peter of all people Peter who told Jesus I'd never deny your name a little servant girl outside in the courtroom of uh, outside of Jesus' courtroom, just in the courtyard, said to Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of them? And this is what Peter responds. This is how Peter responds. I swear to God, I swear to God, I never knew the man. His disciples, all except for John, fled. He was betrayed by a kiss, Judas's kiss. And then, before he even got to the cross, he was whipped beyond measure. I have a gift in my office. Somebody gave me a gift of a scourge. I don't know why they gave it to me. I don't know. But 
it's a reminder. I have it on my, I have it on my window seal, and it reminds, every time I walk in my office, it reminds, me, it reminds me every day of the price that Jesus paid for me. And in the scourge, this is, what it, this, is, this is what happened to Jesus. It was made of, it was a whip that had metal on it at the tips. And every time he was whipped, it would, that metal would lodge into his personal skin, and then they would pull it off. Literally, his back would be without skin after being beaten so many times. Scripture talks about the fact that he didn't even look like a man at some point. And then he went to the cross. They took him to the cross. They executed him by, by means of the cross. And in, in reality, he hung there for six hours. Six hours. He was nailed to the cross. And so for him to last six hours, this is how he'd have to last. He would, he would have to hold himself up to breathe by the nails in his hands and his feet. And then when he, in exhaustion, when he couldn't hold it any longer, he would just collapse. He lasted longer than most men would last. He was a man's man. He lasted for six hours. And then one of the last things he says from the cross, which is probably the most important words for your life and my life, is he says, it is finished. It's finished. And he died. And as you think about that death, the question is, why? All he had to do was bow to Rome, and it would have been over. All he had to do is deny who he was. Now, nah, I'm not really the son of God. That's all he had to do. They took him off the cross. When he died, there was a huge earthquake that happened. The veil in the holy temple was rent in two, signifying there was no longer a need for a priest that we could have direct access to God through this death of the Son of God and that we could have this freeing relationship to him. We could be freed from religion and have a relationship to him, which was just amazing. And at that point in time, uh, I don't know how people miss this, but the scripture says there are people who resurrected from the dead at his death and went into the city. They were probably unlucky because they had to die twice. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> saying. And then he goes to the grave. And next week, I don't want to steal Shane's thunder. I just don't. Because next week, he's going to talk about what happens to him after this death. And uh, it's a glorious thing. And, and uh, come back next week so you can hear this, about this glorious thing that happens. I'm biting my nails to see what Shane's going to say. Somebody says they know. That's good. Awesome. I guess, Shane, you don't have to preach your sermon next week. Yeah. But I'm going to come. I'll be the only one here. And the question then is, is why? Why did Jesus die like that? If I was God, I would script it a different way. You know what I mean? I would have ridden on a, I would have ridden on a stallion in the city of Reno, in the city of Jerusalem. And I would have, I would have, I would have, I would have conquered. I would have said, okay, let's do this now. But Jesus didn't. He died. Why? Well, in the end, look me in the eyes when I say this to you. 
He died because he loves you beyond measure. Anybody here doubted whether God loved them or not? Anybody at all? Just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. And you'll discover the penalty that was paid there for sin was so amazing and so great and so powerful that we should never have to doubt whether God loves us or not. He does. You know, over the years, I've had a lot of people say this to me. They've said, you know, you guys talk about the death of Jesus too much. I've had people say that to me. A lot of people say that to me. You talk about the death of Jesus too much. And they say, you know, you'd have a lot bigger church if you would talk about Jesus as a teacher and as an example. Who doesn't love a teacher and example, right? Jesus was an amazing teacher. Jesus was an amazing teacher. And so they've said, you know, if you just stop this blood stuff and you stop talking about Jesus' death, uh, you, would, you could probably have seven churches in the city of Reno. And I'm going, mm, there's a problem there. You know what the problem is? Is that, well, here, I'll just be truthful with you. Your pastors, me and Shane, have a problem. You know what that problem is? We're sinners. Sinners. Shane's worse than me, but, you know... <laughs> I'm just kidding you, Shane. I'm just kidding. That's uh, just a joke. I'm, I've lived long, longer in life, so my list is this long of, you know, of crimes that I've committed before God, and he's washed them all away, and Shane's is a lot shorter. I'm, I'm just saying. And so, but the reality is, is what the cross represents is the depravity of man. How deeply embedded in sin we really are and what it would take to pay the price for liberation. Jesus didn't come as a good teacher, although he was. He didn't come as a great example because we didn't need to just turn a new leaf over. We needed a new life. That's why Jesus came, to offer you a new life, a life that's free from condemnation, a life that offers forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's what the cross represents. And so this cross that you and I think about, it's a big deal. Minus the resurrection, it is the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind. Minus the resurrection. Because at that moment in time, your sins were nailed to that cross. That's why we needed more than just a good teacher. We needed a liberator, a redeemer, a savior. That is the message of the Bible. And so I hope, my prayer for you is that you'll hear that and you'll understand that and you'll respond to that. There's a verse of scripture that's found in Matthew chapter seven. I think it's around verse 28. I can't remember exactly the address of it, but I know the verse. So let me tell you what the verse says. Jesus says, in that day, the day of judgment, Many shall come to me and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done many mighty wonderful works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. By this, this is free. I didn't mean to say this, so this is all free. <laughs> so how do I know that that's not going to be said to me or to you? How do I know that Jesus isn't going to say, 
Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. The answer to that question is simply this. If I've been broken by the cross, I'll never hear those, I'll never hear those words. What's the difference is the cross. The people who hear those words are people that just turn new leaves over or start a new life, but they've never been broken by the cross. What I mean by that is let the cross show you the depth of your own sin and then bring you to the place of forgiveness. That's what it means to be broken by the cross. And my prayer for everyone here is that you'll be broken by the cross so that you can have forgiveness and new life in him. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? So if you've never had that experience, we beg you to have that today. We've actually crafted an experience for you here this morning. And as we close, we'd like you to stay seated for a minute. And we're going to create an experience. We want you to just respond to God in your heart of, over this amazing love that God offers you.
crucified, on high, crucified Him who knew no sin The Nazarene, the Son of Man Of God, Emmanuel, given to What you went through to love me I'll never understand What blows my mind away is You love me as I Precious Redeemer, Lamb I was slain, hope for the hopeless, lived through shame, friend to the sinner, your grace to my soul, death is defeated, now my sin is By the weight of the world that you came to save You took my place Your blood as rivers flowed freely to the ground Yield in your spirit you let out a holy cry As you gave your Why you went through to love me, I'll never understand What blows my mind away is, you do it all again